0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Joshua, starting in chapter 10, verse 29. Hear now the word of our God from Joshua, chapter 10, starting in verse 29. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king, as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and laid siege to it, and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland, and on the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. When Yabin, king of Hazor, he heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Achshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinaroth, and in the Lowland, and in Nafoth Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, in the hill country, and the Hivites, under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizrephothmaim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him, He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword. For Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hatzor with fire, and all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone, that Joshua burned, and all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland of Israel, sorry, and the lowland of the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which arises towards the east, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, and he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction, and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses." And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated, and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, and ruled from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Yabok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah, to the sea of Kinneroth, eastward, and in the direction of Beit Yeshimoth, to the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, southward, to the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, and ruled over Mount Hermon, and Salekab and all Bashan, to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Maakathites, and over half of Gilead, to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their allotments, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one, the King of Jerusalem, one, the King of Hebron, one, the King of Yarmut, one, the King of Lakish, one, the King of Eglon, one, the King of Gezer, one, the King of Debir, one, the King of Geder, one, the King of Horma, one, the King of Arad, one, the King of Libnah one, the King of Adullam, one, the King of Machedah one, the King of Bethel, one, the King of Tapuah one, the King of Hefer. 1, the king of Afek, 1, the king of Lasharon, 1, the king of Madon, 1, the king of Hazor, 1, the king of Shimron-Meron, 1, the king of Aksath, 1, the king of Taanak. 1, the king of Megiddo, 1, the king of Kadesh, 1, the king of Yokneam in Carmel, 1, the king of Dor in Nafath-Dor, 1, the king of Goyim in Galilee, 1, the king of Tirzah, 1, in all, 31 kings. This is the word of the Lord. Every once in a while it's worth remembering what Paul says to Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, you you might wonder, how is Joshua 11 and 12 profitable for teaching. Okay, teaching, okay, well, obviously it's the word of God, so it's probable for teaching, but for reproof? For correction? For training in righteousness? I mean, if you take this as, go and do likewise, uh, you're not supposed to go out and slaughter all the inhabitants of of Granger tonight. Please don't do that. So, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, Think about Psalm 44 that we sang earlier. Psalm 44 remembers the conquest, how God drove out the nations before Israel. That we sang. You know, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. The sons of Korah proclaim, You are my king, O God. And even though now... The sons of Korah are singing, you've rejected us, you've made us sheep for the slaughter, yet we still trust in you. Part of the lesson of the conquest that Psalm 44 is teaching us is that God is king. He's the one who gives victory to his people. He's the one who goes before his people. And it can be really tempting sometimes to think, ah, so if we're faithful, if we're obedient, if we do what God says, then he'll give us the victory, right? Right? Psalm 44 says, no, no, no. That's not the lesson you need to learn from Joshua 11 and 12. Now, over the last couple weeks, you might be excused to think that was the lesson because after the victory at Jericho, Achan took the devoted goods and judgment fell on God's people because of the disobedience in the camp. Only when they disciplined Achan and removed the evil from the camp... Only then did God give them the victory over I. And then there was the question we saw last time over whether, the, would, would the alliance with Gibeon result in judgment? Because God does really care that we obey him. God never says that some sins are okay. Psalm 44 wrestles with this because, according to the psalmist, in his day, Israel had been faithful Their defeat in battle could not be attributed to their sin. They had been faithful to God's covenant. Now, this doesn't mean that they were sinless. What it means is, they had been faithfully worshiping God. And when they sinned, they were repenting and bringing their sacrifices and sort of doing what God told them to do. And yet, their enemies had defeated them, humiliated them. How do we make sense of this? If obedience is supposed to result in victory then how do we make sense of the awful tragedies and sufferings of life? Well, if we pay attention to what Joshua is doing, we'll see that he's not just providing us the historical account of what happened when Israel invades the land. He's also talking about how do we think about how God gives the victory. Notice the very opening line of our passage in verse 29 of chapter 10 then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makedah to Libna and fought against it. Part of it is, okay, yeah, Israel's following Joshua. You, you remember the, the, the Exodus, how Israel grumbled in the wilderness over and over again. Now, Israel is obeying the voice of the Lord and they're following the, the Lord's anointed and they're winning the victory. But if that's all we say, uh, verse 30, the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. If God always rewards obedience with blessing and disobedience with cursing, well, then we're kind of treating God like a magical genie. If you just do the, push the right buttons, God will give you what you want. So keep reading. And he, who's the he? Joshua. He, struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. We saw at the beginning of Joshua that God promised that Joshua would cause Israel to inherit the land. It's not Israel's obedience that will give them the land. It's Joshua's. Israel inherits the land because of Joshua's faithfulness. God will destroy his enemies through the hand of his anointed conqueror. If you want to live in the promised land, if you want to live in the eternal inheritance, then you must line up behind the anointed conqueror and follow him. And what did he say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. These fifteen verses at the end of chapter ten chronicle the destruction of the southern Canaanites. Libna falls in verse thirty, Lakish in verse thirty two, Gazer in verse thirty three, and then Eglon and, and Hebron uh, Hebron was named, also known as Kiriath Arba, this which was that was the place where Sarah had died, Abraham's wife, and the, Hebron will later be David's royal city. So these southern cities are falling to to Joshua and to Israel, these leading cities of the Canaanites in the south. Uh, and, and when you hear when you when you hear it, at first you'd hear, ah, oh, so they they and they kill everyone. Well, yes, they kill everyone that they capture. It's worth remembering that that sort of what about all the people that fled from the city and ran away? Well, they didn't kill them because they had. So, because you'll you'll quickly notice both in Joshua and then later in Judges that Israel doesn't actually kill everybody. I mean, it sounds here like they're killing everybody. Well, no, they didn't. They just. But when they captured a city, they are God had commanded them to kill everyone. This is this is the final judgment falling upon Canaan, and so the the destruction that they bring is supposed to be entire, total destruction. And so this is the final judgment falling upon the Canaanites. So it, when it says that he devoted them to, dis, to, devoted to destruction all that breathed, it's not saying that there are no Canaanites left in the south because those who fled to the hills survived. Uh, so, and that's where, as later chapters will reveal, there's still a lot more work to be done. But they've captured the leading cities. And after slaughtering their enemies throughout the south, Joshua has cut off the war-making power. And that's part of the key point first. is This is where, at this point, Joshua will turn northward because his southern flank is no longer a, a, a threat to him. He has taken out their armies. And sure, there are still plenty of Canaanites living in the south, but they're not a threat because he's cut off their, their, their armies. And then in verse 42, we hear the main point of this. Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And notice, all these kings and their land. The promised land, the promised seed go together. The kings of the nations of the Canaanites have been in rebellion against God. God had said that when the fullness of the wickedness of the Canaanites was complete, that he he would bring Israel in judgment against them. And so now the holy seed comes into the land and the seed of the serpent is driven back. But also notice the importance of the Lord's anointed. It is Joshua who captured these kings and their land at one time. Think back to Psalm 44. It's not enough for Israel to be faithful. After all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a Joshua to go before us. We need the Lord God of Israel to fight for us. Notice the two things you need. You need a true and faithful man to go before you, and you need God himself to fight for you. Now, what the book of Joshua doesn't explicitly do, but this is what the prophets will do later, is show that ultimately you need those two to come in the person of one. That you need a true and faithful man who is also God himself to be the one who goes before us and wins the victory. There's a reason why he's named Joshua. Because Joshua means the Lord saves. And in Greek, it's translated Jesus. Jesus. But Joshua's blitzkrieg through the south only rouses the wrath of the north against him. The northern alliance gathers the hosts of hell to fight against him. Yabin, king of Hazor, gathers the forces of the nations. Now, Yabin actually may be the the dynastic name of the the kings of Hazor. Uh, There's another king of Hazor named Yabin in Judges 4. Uh, He's the king who will send Sisera against Israel in the book of Judges. So Yabin is sort of like uh, sort of like Caesar winds up being the the dynastic name uh, or Augustus uh, in the Roman world. Um, so also Yabin may be the name of the kings of Hazor. But Yabin gathers an alliance of Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Hivites. And they come as a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And and Yabin comes against Israel at the waters of Merom, literally the waters of the heights. Uh, there's no other reference to Merom in scripture, but the if you think about the picture here, Yabin assembles a great army compared to the sand on the seashore. Now, why would why, why would our author use that phrase? That phrase had been used to promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore. But yet now it's being applied to the armies of the Northern Alliance. This is a counterfeit army, you might say. This is, this, the, the Canaanites were trying to replace, displace the seed of Abraham. They have assembled a great horde against the people of God. You could also see Yabin. The picture of Yabin here winds up as a prelude. It'll build into a picture of Antichrist in later battles because he gathers at the waters of the heights, and this is the same word used for the high places of, of worship. So the waters of the heights... It's a picture of the, 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 the waters being often a picture for the, the nations at the heights in false places of worship. And you have this king gathering this great army with this counterfeit against Abraham. Uh, actually, you, if you think about the you know, book, book of Revelation 19, you, you see it, sort of a, a foretelling of the, the, sort of the battle of, of Armageddon in the battles of the waters of Merom. Many nations are gathering together to put an end to the Lord's anointed. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed? But the Lord speaks to Joshua and tells him, Do not be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And he commands them to hamstring their horses and, and burn their chariots with the fire. Now you you might think, whoa, there's some pretty nifty military technology. If if you can defeat them and capture their equipment, now then Israel would have a better a better equipped army. This is a missed opportunity. Israel could have become a leading power in the region if they had captured those chariots and trained people to use them. But that's not God's point. God is not I mean this is where the conquest is supposed to be where Israel takes possession of the land they're not supposed to become a great power that is going off and invading the other nations. God is the one who fights for his people. They don't need the latest and greatest technology. They need the word of the Lord to go before them and defeat his and their enemies. And that's what God does. He gives them into the hand of Israel, and so Joshua does what the Lord commands. This is one of the, one of the things that, you know, the book of Joshua is one of those rare books of the Bible where over and over and over again it says, and they did what the Lord commanded. (laughs) That's, that doesn't happen in every generation. He burns the chariots with fire. He hamstrings the horses. God is the divine warrior, and he doesn't need our nifty technology to win his battles. Paul will make a similar point about spiritual warfare in the New Testament. How does salvation come to the ends of the earth? Through the foolishness of preaching. Paul even says, the folly of what we preach. There were plenty of preachers in the ancient world. There were lots of, lots of philosophers and teachers who would tell you how to live a good life. Here, here's, some, here's some techniques you can use to be a better person. Follow my, my tips to wealth and power and prestige. J. Gresham machin points out that the strange thing about Christianity was that it adopted an entirely different method. It transformed the lives of men not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story. Not by exhortation, but by the narration of an event. It is no wonder that such a method seems strange. Could anything be more impractical than to attempt to influence conduct by rehearsing events concerning the death of a religious teacher? That is what Paul called the foolishness of the message. It seemed foolish to the ancient world and it seems foolish to liberal preachers today. But the strange thing, Machen says, is that it works. The effects of it appear even in this world. Where the most eloquent exhortation fails, the simple story of an event succeeds. The lives of men are transformed by a piece of news. After all, even in our own text in Joshua, what was it that changed the life of Rahab forever? A piece of news. The God of Israel was bringing judgment on Canaan. The same piece of news brought terror and destruction to the rest of Jericho as the rest of Jericho fought against that piece of news and said, no way are we putting up with this. We are going to fight back. But Rahab heard that piece of news and said, my I, I I I believe. Help save me. <laughs> what changed the lives of the Gibeonites? The same message. When they submitted to that message and repented and believed the news, they were saved. The very message of the coming judgment became a message of salvation to Rahab, to the Gibeonites to all who joined themselves to them. We were told that no other city was like Gibeon. No other city submitted and repented. Now, it is worth noting that it would not at all be appropriate to, to judge by that, that therefore no other individuals did. The very fact that Rahab did, the very fact that Gibeonites did, should suggest to us that it would be if, if any others had come and said, ah, we believe in your God, we want, and in fact, you can see from the, the genealogies and the stories later on in the Israel, there were a whole lot of people who did that very thing. Because those who would repent and believe the good news will be saved. But the message of the cross is foolishness to Greeks. And a stumbling block to the Jews. I mean, that's, and that's, you can see in a way, verses 10 to 15, describing the destruction of the Northern Alliance uh, with the Lord going before him. Joshua captures all the leading cities of his enemies. Hatzor is punished for, for heading up the Northern Alliance. So Hatzor is the only city in the north burned with fire. Now, archaeology demonstrates throughout this time period that there's not widespread massive destruction then again, the text of Scripture says there wasn't widespread massive destruction. Hazor burned with fire. All the rest of the cities in the north of Israel left untouched. So, sure, there'd be a lot of people killed, but then the actual situation on the ground would be, and then the Israelites move in, take over, and like I said earlier, the fact that they don't actually kill everybody, and in the very next chapter, we'll talk about all the people they don't kill. So, these, this chapter makes it sound like, oh, they killed everybody. Well, no, they killed everybody who was left in the city when they captured the city. But all the people who ran away, they're still around. But the, the cities are depopulated, you might say, as Israel brings the final judgment against these nations. And the focus of these verses is on how Joshua did what the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua causes Israel to inherit the land. The Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Joshua. Jesus saves. He is the, in a sense you can say, it, Joshua is the Jesus of the Old Testament, the one whose faithful obedience causes his people to inherit God's promises. And Israel's job is to follow Jesus, just like ours. Verses 16 to 20 then give us a, a summary of the conquest of the land. Uh, The point of the conquest is stated in verse 20 that God's purpose was to bring judgment against these nations as a picture of what is in store for any nation that does not yield itself to the Lord. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, verse 20, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy. There's a way in which the Canaanites give us a, a, a picture of what the final judgment will look like when Jesus comes in glory to judge the living and the dead, I, I don't think we will see very many people wishing that they could convert. Their hearts are hard. If, if you hate God and you hate God's people, C.S. Lewis describes, uh, describes this rather well because like, why would they want to be near God? They would prefer to be free in hell than to spend eternity with those they hate. There's a there's a way in which, as we we've seen in Joshua, the, the, there's 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 a, a chiastic structure to the whole of the conquest. If you remember, they they had crossed they had they had crossed the Red Sea, and the, and then in Joshua they crossed the Jordan River. Before they crossed the Red Sea, they had celebrated the Passover in Egypt, and after they crossed the Jordan River, they celebrate the Passover. Well, what happened before they crossed the Red Sea? Before the Passover? Pharaoh had hardened his heart and God brought judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt. What happens now after the Passover, after they've taken, come into the land? Well, the Lord hardens the Canaanites' hearts that he might bring his judgment upon them. And so verses 21 to 23 then summarize the the conquest of the seed, the, the Anakim in this case, the, the great giants, the great warriors of the ancient world. And now the, the the sons of God, led by Joshua, the anointed conqueror, cut off the Anakim from the land. Only a few, we're told, are left in Gaza, Gath and Ashdod, which will become the chief cities of the Philistines in Part of what you see here is that there's there's just a hint of what's going to come later. Because many years later, another of the Anakim will arise and taunt Israel, claiming that Yahweh could not defend them. And God does not raise up a mighty warrior to face him down. But he calls a a shepherd boy to cast down the mighty Goliath. If if you think about it, it's, it's the Lord's anointed, David, who goes into battle against Goliath. The main main message of the story of David and Goliath is is not that, ah, you can defeat Goliath if you trust God enough. No. Who, Who else in Israel could possibly have stood up against Goliath? Goliath is one of the Anakim. Who can stand up against him? The Lord's anointed. Just as Joshua had done so in the conquest, the next person to fight the Anakim is David. The Lord's anointed. You and I, we're not big enough and strong enough to go up against the Anakim. We're not big enough and strong. No matter how much you trust God, <laughs> it's only Jesus. It's only the Lord's anointed, Joshua, David, Jesus, who can go before you and destroy the Anakim. The seed of the woman must triumph over the seed of the serpent. Israel must destroy the Anakim. It's no accident that David's stone hits Goliath where crush the serpent's head. That's what he uh, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's what the story, where the story is going. But so we're told verse twenty three, Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. We'll see. There's more foes still to be fought, but the point that is that Joshua was faithful. He he overthrew the major cities, many of which Israel captured and inhabited. And we'll see we'll see later that there are others that they couldn't inhabit quickly. There's not enough Israelites to to quickly populate the whole of the land, so there are many cities where the locals will reassert control. But he brought judgment upon the Canaanites showing forth a picture of what the final judgment would be for all who rebel against the Lord. And so in, in retrospect, in, 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 verse, in chapter 12, we, we've just given this, we're just given this big picture overview. And we're, we're reminded first in, in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 12 that Moses had conquered two kings on the east side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, and Og is called one of the remnant of the Rephaim, which is also a term used for the Anakim. He's, he's called a remnant because they had been overthrown back in Genesis 14. But, but Moses had given the land of Og and, Bash- and, and, and Sihon to the two and a half tribes, to Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And then we hear in the rest of the chapter the the list of the the kings that had been overthrown, 31 kings in all. And by walking through those 31 kings city by city, We are reminded of God's providence. 31 kings with their fortified towns fell against the armies of the Lord. 31 kings whose armies were like the sand of the seashore. And yet it is Abraham's seed who triumphs over the nations. It is Joshua who causes Israel to inherit the land. It is Jesus who causes us to inherit the new creation. And so when you're in a Psalm 44 moment, when you're saying, okay, why is this happening to me, I haven't been rebelling and yet all this stuff's going on. Remember that it is Jesus who wins the victory. And when he calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. That cross, the, cr- the cross is always unjust suffering. I mean, if you're suffering justly, it's not the cross. If you're suffering for your own sin, if you're suffering because you did something stupid... That's, that's not the cross. That's just what you deserve for what you did. But the cross is the unjust suffering that we endure. The cross is the things that shouldn't be happening to us when somebody else is sinning against us. That's the cross that we endure. And that's the cross that Jesus promises us that as we, as we trust him, as we as we have confidence in Him, He has already won the victory in His cross, and through our bearing the cross, He will continue to bring the victory to His people. Just for your encouragement, I, just not, not just not just from ancient history, but even even in in our own day, there are so many stories of of. People who, through their patient endurance of unjust suffering, the gospel came to bear in their own lives and the lives of those around them. I mean, just—and I know that there are so many of you for whom that has been true—that the fruit that has come in your life, the fruit that have come in the lives of those around you, uh, just I. I'd encourage you to talk about those stories with each other. I don't always feel comfortable telling them from the pulpit because uh, you didn't give me permission to do that. So, but but just talk with each other. Ask sort of what, how have you how have you encountered the, the cross in your life? And as you hear the stories of, of those who have gone before you, because oftentimes. You know, it's, it's usually the older people who have more of these stories just because they've been around longer, but ask each other about, their, about your stories. Here, listen to the stories of, of, because God has continued to do this. He's continued to work the, the way of the cross in, the, in conforming his people to the image of Jesus. So let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your great faithfulness. Thank you for your great mercy in how you have delivered us from the bonds of sin and death, how you have saved us from the wrath and curse that was upon us because of our sin. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him who loved us and gave himself for us that we might no longer be slaves to sin in bondage to death and under the curse of the devil forever. Lord, thank you that you have that you have made us your own children, fellow heirs with your Son, who triumphed over sin, death, and the devil forever. Lord, help us and be gracious to us. We we acknowledge before you that we have sinned against you. We have blasphemed your name in in the way that we've spoken, in the way that we've lived, in the way that we've thought. Lord, have mercy upon us and forgive us. Renew us by your grace. And shine upon us the light of your countenance that we might know your presence, that we might know your peace, that that, that peace that passes understanding might truly take, take up residence in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, who is your peace. Lord, help us. And as we go through the coming week, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to, to humble ourselves before you, to devote ourselves to, to, to your word, to prayer, to fellowship with the saints, to encouraging one another in the in the way of our of our Saviour. Lord have mercy and help us by the grace of your Son, for we pray in his name. Amen.